0: Morning, Reality Carp. It is good to be with you. Uh, let's get into God's word together. If you will, open up in your Bible to John chapter eight. We are finishing John chapter eight today. The title of this sermon is Jesus is better than you think. We'll be reading verse 48 to 49. Let's read that pray and and then dive into God's word together. Verse 48 says this, the Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it. And he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you but I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, Before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. God, we thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you that you have given us your perfect word and your Holy Spirit. And God, I confess that I feel like um, just a jar of clay and Lord, together we confess that we are just jars of clay and on our own, Lord, we are helpless and we are hopeless. But Lord, we know that these jars of clay hold a treasure, a treasure that is of infinite value. And that treasure is the gospel, the knowledge of Jesus. And so Lord, I, I just ask that you would use me and all of my weaknesses and imperfections and you would speak to us through your word and in spite of all of our weaknesses and imperfections. And you would simply remind us of the treasure that is in Jesus. We need Jesus today. We need to see Jesus again. You are our hope, King Jesus. So we thank you for your word, Spirit of God. Show us Christ. Show us the glory and majesty and mercy and beauty and sufficiency in Jesus today. Amen. Amen. Well, we know as human beings that when we go through trials, when we go through conflicts, when life bears down on us, when we are under pressure, the Bible says that to the sons and daughters of God, those trials are like a furnace uh, that, that, that refines and purifies the way, the way gold or silver is refined and purified. You, you take this, uh, metal of this gold or the silver and you, you put it in a furnace and you melt it down and you increase the heat until all of the imperfections rise to the surface. And this is one of God's ways of refining his kids, refining our character, of making us more like Jesus. As pressure comes, as we suffer, as we face trials, those imperfections in us rise to the surface so that the Spirit of God can come and remove those things. And so God uses trials and conflicts and difficulties to expose those things in us that need to go. Now, I want you to think about this question. What would and what did those trials and that fire and that suffering, what would it reveal in the life of Jesus, Jesus who was perfect. What happens when when Jesus Christ goes through, went through trials and suffering and persecution and conflict? Well, as you know, he was perfect. There was no dross to remove. And so when we see Jesus under pressure, when we look at Jesus in conflict and in trials, there is nothing to rise to the surface but glory and beauty like a diamond under pressure, when, when Christ is put under pressure, just glory and beauty and majesty shine forth. And that is what we see in our text this morning. The glory, the beauty, the majesty of Jesus. And if you remember, chapter 8, in chapter 8, Jesus is in a conflict, in a fight with some of the religious leaders, the Jews, the unbelieving Jews. And it all began when Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath and they begin to question him and challenge him. Who, who do you think you are? And they get into this conversation and it becomes clear that these Jews are rejecting Jesus, rejecting his identity. And then, G- and then Jesus makes this statement about the truth. And he says, the truth will make you free. But these Jews get offended and they say, well, who are you to say that we are slaves? We've, we're not slaves of anyone. Our father is Abraham. We're, we are truly sons of Abraham. And Jesus goes on to press them and to challenge them. And this conflict rises to its climax in, in chapter 844, when Jesus simply says to them, you are of your father, the devil. And so this conflict is heated. And, and in these final uh, verses, in the end of chapter eight, Jesus is outright attacked. And we see three specific attacks on the person of Jesus. And, and in each of these attacks, we see beauty and glory and majesty and mercy just pouring out of Jesus. Jesus, when he's attacked, unlike you and me, he doesn't return evil for evil. He doesn't return reviling for reviling. And so as we see Jesus attacked these three times, we're gonna see just some beauty and glory uh, just coming out of Jesus. He's, he's far better than we think. And so we're going to see an attack first on his reputation. Then we're going to see attack on his identity. And then third, we will see an at- attack on his life. So let's look at this text verse by verse. First, we'll look at the attack on his reputation. Look with me again at verse 48 to 51. The Jews answered him, are we not right in saying you are a Samaritan and have a demon? That's attack number one. They just, they have moved beyond reason and logic. And this is what you would classically call an ad hominem. When you're in an argument, a debate, and someone is clearly winning that debate and they, they have the upper hand and their logic and their, their reasoning is better. What often happens is you, you give up engaging on the debate and you just start attacking the other person. And that's exactly what they do here. They just, they just start throwing kind of ethnic and spiritual slurs at Jesus. You're a Samaritan, which was the chief insult from one Jew to another. If you remember the Samaritans, are from those Jews who were left, that they were the poorest of the poor who were left in the promised land when the Israelites were removed in exile. And they ended up intermarrying with the surrounding nations. They even began mixing their customs, religious worship with these other cultures. And so when the Jews came back to rebuild, there was this clear group who was different than them and and they refused help from them to rebuild the temple and, and, and then really these two groups began to be rivals and they, they lived in a, in a similar, next to one another in Israel, but they hated one another. And so they simply just called Jesus, are you not a Samaritan? And then even worse, they say, and you have a demon, Jesus. You have a demon. Now they've, they've said this before earlier in his ministry. They said this very thing about John the Baptist. They say, you, are a Samaritan and have a demon. Now, how does Jesus respond to such name calling? Well, look with me at verse 49 to 51. What comes out of Jesus when when he's attacked in this way? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. So so first, the first thing we see here is this. Jesus, Jesus, first of all, ignores the first accusation. He doesn't even address it, and we can get some wisdom there from Jesus. Sometimes it's worth not even spending our time or energy on a a personal attack such as, such as this, but then he does, he does address the, the accusation that, that he is demon possessed. And what he says is I don't have a demon because I honor God. How could one who honors God, the father have a demon, but you dishonor me, he says. And then verse 50, look what he says to them. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Now this response of Jesus is so profound for followers of Jesus. Jesus speaks a simple truth, but but look where he puts his hope. He puts his hope, his reputation, his vindication, He just simply trusts his father with those things. He says, you know, it's it's not for you to judge or for me to judge. There's one who is gonna judge and it's my father. And Jesus puts his rest of his own name and reputation in the hands of his father and and this is such a profound truth if if we as sons and daughters of God are attacked our hope is not to redeem ourselves or justify ourselves or to get enough people to defend us our hope is in God that God knows and God sees and the only opinion that really matters is that of your heavenly Father. And that's where Jesus rests his hope. Now, he then adds another statement in verse 51 as he's pressed and he's attacked. And it's just a a wonderful thing that comes out of Jesus, even under pressure. Verse 51, look what he says. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Not only does Jesus not defend himself, here he puts out this, this promise. Because, because he knows, and this is what's so amazing about Jesus. Even as he's being attacked by a mob, by this group of people, he puts out hope to his enemies, to the very ones who are attacking him, that if anyone would trust in him and hope in his word, they could be saved. They would not see death. You see, Jesus not only doesn't defend himself and not only does he not attack his enemies, he extends an offer of grace and mercy to his enemies. He knows there may be a handful of Jews in this crowd who, who would trust in him one day. And rather than just crush his enemies, he offers hope and mercy. He says, by the way, not only do I not have a demon, not only is my hope in God, if you trust me, you will never see death. And and as we know, as we even see explicitly later in the gospel of John, Jesus isn't referring to physical death. He would go on to say, if anyone trusts in me, even though he die, yet, yet he will live again. What Jesus is referring to in verse 51 is spiritual death. They will never see the second death. They will never go to hell. They will never be punished for their sin. If anyone hears his word and not only hears his word and not only believes his word, but keeps his word. If anyone believes the gospel and keeps it, reorients their entire life around Jesus and his word, they need not fear eternal death. Now, That takes the edge off of our fear of eternal separation from God, but it also takes the sting out of our physical death. As later in 1 Corinthians, Paul reminds us the sting of death is sin. What what really makes death so bad is what comes after death, that we have all sinned before God, but if one puts their trust in Jesus, that sin is removed as far as the East is from the West. And what death used to mean as the gateway to eternal punishment for our rebellion against God, because of the blood of Jesus, all death is now for a believer, is the gateway to eternal life. Christians, we don't need to fear eternal and spiritual death, but we don't even need to fear physical death. That sting has been removed. And you know, physical death is really just a metaphor, a picture of a far worse reality, which is, eternal separation, eternal punishment in hell from God. That is the far worse thing that physical death is just a little picture of. But when we turn to Christ and hear the gospel and keep his word, all of those fears are removed. And so Jesus, even when he's attacked, like when he was hanging on the cross, he turns with grace and mercy to his attackers. Father, forgive them for they, not know, they know not what they're doing. He's, he's turning even to these attackers and he's offering salvation. Who is like Jesus? And as followers of Jesus, even on a global or national scale or on a personal scale, when we are attacked, we follow a man who loved his enemies and saw it as an opportunity to extend the gospel to them. Jesus is far better than we think. And so that first attack was on his reputation. Now the second attack is on his identity. We're gonna look here at verse 52 down to 58. Let's get started there. So that the Jews, verse 52, said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father, Abraham, who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Just pause there. The Jews, when they hear Jesus say, if you trust me, you will never taste death. They they can't even wrap their minds around it. They, as they were discussing Abraham in the verses preceding our text, as they were discussing who were true sons of Abraham, they're saying, Jesus, even Abraham, our father, He died and the prophets died. And if if Abraham, the father of the faith and the prophets, the one who brought us the word of God, if they died, are you trying to say you're greater than them? That if we accept your word, we will never die? Who do you make yourself out to be? And how does Jesus respond to this challenge? Are you saying you're greater than Abraham and the prophets? An attack on his identity? Look what Jesus says. Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word, and, and, and before we get on to his main response, again, notice Jesus time and time again affirming his identity as the son of the father. My father glorifies me. I know him. I say what I hear from him. He's affirming his identity as the son of God. As they attack his identity, He's he's reminding and affirming his identity as the son of God. But now look at his response to their accusation. Are you better than Abraham? Verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, Jesus responds first by saying, you think Abraham is impressive? but you don't even realize that what Abraham loved and longed to see and put all of his hope in was me, was my day. Now, what's Jesus saying here? How could he say Abraham longed to see Jesus's day? Well, a couple of things. If you remember back to Genesis chapter 12, when when God called Abraham, Abraham. One of the things, the first things God promised to Abraham was that through Abraham, all the nations would be blessed. And then if you remember a few chapters later in Genesis 15, as God was visiting Abraham and Sarah in, the, in these three angels, one of which may have been a pre-incarnate. Jesus and Abraham received them. And those angels said, this time next year, you will have a son. And if you remember, these were some old, this was an old couple. Abraham was 99. And do you remember the responses that came out of Abraham and Sarah? They literally fell on their faces and laughed. That is the most ridiculous thing we have ever heard. But they still believed. And then if you remember a few more chapters, Genesis 22. And we have this story when when Abraham finally had his son and it was his son Isaac as a young man. and, And then God came to Abraham and told him, Abraham, I want you to go to the mountain up to the top of that mountain, Mount Moriah over there. And I want you to sacrifice your son who you love, your only son, the son who brought you so much joy, whose very name means laughter. The very son through whom I'm gonna bless the nations. I want you to walk your son to the top of that mountain. And I want you to sacrifice him. And so what did Abraham do? He obeyed God and he trusted, I don't understand this, but I know my God is able to even raise the dead. He 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 must have some plan to raise my son from the dead. And so he takes the wood that he's gonna burn, this burnt offering, and he places it on the back of his own son. And he takes the knife in his hand and says, come on, son. We're gonna go have a sacrifice. We're gonna go worship the Lord on the top of that mountain. So they head up there and the son, Isaac, is knows something about worship and about sacrifices. He's seen his dad worship God before. And he says, dad, where's where's the lamb? And Abraham says to his son, son, the Lord will provide it. And so they get to the top and... To Isaac's dismay, there's no lamb and his dad begins to build an altar and he lays out the wood and then he tells his son, son, I need you to get on top of this altar. And Isaac, who trusts his dad, who loves his dad, climbs up and lays down on this altar and as Abraham is preparing the altar, he maybe even ties ropes down on top of his son and Isaac is laying there and his heart would be racing and Abraham's just wondering, okay, Lord. And Abraham raises his hand with the knife in it to sacrifice his own son. And then he hears the voice of God saying, Abraham, stop. I know now that you love me you trust me and you will not withhold even your own son from me and then abraham looked and he saw something he saw something and in a bush there was a ram caught and he went and he grabbed that land and and that ram and he untied his son together they sacrificed that ram And they stood there and watched it burn. And then the scripture says, for on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. The Lord will provide another sacrifice, one that no person could provide. Now, if you know anything about um, that geography there, or even somewhat of your Old Testament, you know that hundreds of years later, King David was ruling in a very similar area, and he disobeyed God at one point, and God sent a plague, and it was ravaging the kingdom, and there was this angel that was that was there, the angel of death, and he was going throughout the city, and taking life. And then this angel got to this household. And right at that moment, as this this angel was going to this household, uh, the hand of God stopped and he said, enough, I'm going to have mercy now on my people. And right at the threshold of this man's house and, and it, the, the, the Bible tells us that the, the very place where God had mercy, where that angel stopped was also on Mount Moriah, the same mountain Abraham took his son up to. And, and so that very spot became the temple mountain where David's son would build the temple where sacrifices were to be given as people would just worship and remind one another that the Lord would one day provide a perfect sacrifice for all the sins of the nation. And then if you fast forward to the very life of Jesus and you realize that it's on that same Temple Mount, that same mountain that God sent his own son with the wood on his own back with which he would be sacrificed on that very mountain. And, and, and God provided his own son, his firstborn son, Jesus, to be the perfect sacrifice, to take away the sins of every person who would ever trust in him. And so Jesus was the fulfillment. He was the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 that Abraham would have a son one day who would bless the nations. And God's promise as, as he finally gave him a son and that son was named a laughter as God provided joy, as he he fulfilled that promise. And, And Jesus was also the fulfillment of that day when Abraham stood on the mountain and he looked and saw with his own eyes that God does provide. He did provide a sacrifice. And Abraham saw from a distance, from over 1800 years before Jesus came, he saw though dimly that God fulfills his promises. He will bless the nations. He will bring joy and laughter. And on the mountain of the Lord, he will provide a sacrifice. Abraham saw those things. And as Jesus says in verse 56, he saw it and was glad. He saw it and was glad. And I just want us to take something for our own hearts and lives from this very text that because of Jesus, because of Jesus, we are among those nations who were blessed through the son of Abraham. And through Jesus, our sins were nailed to the cross. And if you have put your trust in Jesus your sin has been removed God has provided a lamb for you and so you can see him and like Abraham be glad there is no greater source of gladness in all of the universe than seeing the person of Jesus the identity of and glory of Jesus. And so Jesus says, you think Abraham or these prophets are greater than me? (laughs) I am what they put all of their hope in. And so he goes on to say in verse 58, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And what Jesus is saying there is not only am I what Abraham looked forward to, I am the God of Abraham. He uses that expression again that he's used a few times before, ego emi, I am that I am. Here Jesus Identifies his identity is not just the one that the prophets and Abraham looked forward to. He is Yahweh Himself. He is the God who spoke to Moses those very words. I am who I am. As the book of Revelation, we see Jesus saying, I am the first and the last, the Alpha. The Omega, Jesus, His identity. He's not just better than these Jews thought, than Abraham thought, than the prophets thought. He is God Himself. And you and I have an opportunity, like Abraham, in faith to look on Jesus and be glad, to find joy that our sins have been removed, that we don't provide our own sacrifice as if that would somehow be sufficient. No, God had to provide and he has provided. He's provided his own son, the second member of the Godhead, God himself. And so Jesus, as his very identity is attacked, again, he just puts forth hope. There is hope. There is gladness available because of who he is and what he has done as the sacrifice, the lamb of God. Now, last, we we see not just an attack on his reputation, not just an attack on his identity. Finally, We see it end in the, in the ultimate climax. They attack his very life. Verse 59. So they picked up stones to throw at him. Stoning was, uh, in the law, it was the punishment for blasphemy. And so we see here that this crowd does not believe or accept Jesus' claims to divinity. Rather, they think he is blaspheming God. And so they pick up stones to throw at him. They attack his very life. But look how that verse ends. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Now, we can see here, which we have seen a few times before that, no one takes Jesus's life from him. That he gives his life, he lays it down and and Jesus is not truly in danger until his exact time and place. And so for us, as we've seen so many times already in the gospel of John, our our lives are in God's hands, our days and our hours are in his hands. We need not fear death or disaster to come uh, until God takes us Home, but, but not only do we see that truth, we see something else here. We, we see in some way, a, a little picture of the cross. We see as the enemies of Jesus seek to attack him, that even when they do their utmost to defeat and destroy him, he's free. He, he can't be conquered. And so somehow, in some way, supernaturally or otherwise, Jesus escapes and, and gets out of this attack on his life. But we know it will be just a few months from this moment when Jesus will again be attacked, when his very life will be attacked. And and we know even in that moment that Jesus gives himself to be attacked. And and not only do they throw stones, but they whip him and they put a, a crown of thorns in his head and they make him carry his cross and they nail his body to a cross and he's slowly suffocating and bleeding and dying. And even when the enemies of God do their utmost most to attack him, even as they do take his very life. Jesus is better than we think. He doesn't stay dead. And not only that, but in his very death, in the most evil act in all of human history, God was offering his son as a propitiation a substitution for the sins of every person who would put their hope in him. And three days later, Jesus would rise again. We see even when Jesus is physically attacked and killed, that is no way to conquer the son of God. And he rises again and for those who would put their hope and their trust in him their sins would be removed and they too would have the promise of eternal life of rising from the dead now there's one more uh subtle theme here in verse 59 and and it really is a sobering warning for any of us who 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 hear these words, you see, as, as it says, they picked up stones to throw at him. Jesus, what does Jesus do? He hides himself and he, look at those words at the very end of the chapter. He went out of the temple. He went out of the temple. Now think with me for a minute here. The temple was a place of worship place where people would come to meet with God, to hear the words of God, and to offer sacrifices to look forward to the day when God would provide a sacrifice to remove all of their sin. And and so there is no more fitting place for Jesus, the Son of God, the one who is filled with the Spirit. There is no more fitting place on earth for Him to be than in the temple. And yet, the very purpose of the temple, as he is displaying and teaching his very glory and identity, he is not worshiped. He is not crowned. He is not honored. But he's rejected. And there is no greater judgment than for Jesus himself to leave his temple his place of worship and if you recall in the the book of Ecle- ezekiel ezekiel has this vision and he has this vision of the presence of god the the shekinah glory this cloud and it's it's dwelling in the holy of holies in the temple in jerusalem but we see in this these visions that the people have rejected God. They've turned to idols. The priests, the elders are all worshiping idols. And even in the very temple, we see these pictures of idols and, and idol worship and people going to the very steps of the temple and turning away from the temple and worshiping the sun. We see these abominations happening where God should be worshiped. And and then Ezekiel sees that glory cloud leave that holy of holies and goes to the threshold of the temple. And and then he sees it depart even from the threshold and, and it goes out to the edge of the city. And then it actually goes all the way to the mountain overlooking the city. And finally he sees the glory of God leave altogether and go up to heaven. And it is this picture of what happens when people forget to worship their God, when they replace the worship of the true God with their idols. And we see here a picture when Jesus is rejected, when he hides himself and the glorious Son of God, leaves the temple. And this is really a warning for Christians in a church, a place of worship, a place where Jesus deserves attention and honor and glory. You see, churches can subtly begin to be about anything and everything except for Jesus. Maybe it's good works. Maybe it's blessing their community or blessing one another. It may be um, even good commandments of God to seek justice, to love mercy, to care for the poor, to engage Culture to produce beautiful art and beautiful things. It may even be to pursue truth and doctrine and, and proper teaching. But if the Christian church forgets the point of it all, the person of Jesus. There may come a day when Jesus slowly removes himself from the presence of those worshipers. And St. Augustine put it this way uh, when he was teaching on verse 59. He says, so these people picked up their stones to throw at Jesus. But it's far worse when you see Jesus leaving those who have rejected him because of their hearts of stone. And so it is so important for us as a church to remember what this is all about. This is all about Jesus. About Jesus, about his glory, about his word, about his identity, about his sacrifice on the cross. It's not about us or our comfort or our impressive this, or our impressive that, not about our name, not about our reputation. It is all about Jesus. And we can forego anything and everything else so long as we are worshiping Jesus. And so because Jesus is the son of God, because he trusts his reputation with God. He knows his identity as the one to whom all the prophets looked forward to, that he is the true sacrifice, that even in his death, he worked life for those who would trust in him. Church, we can be free from our fear of man, from our fear of not being loved and appreciated by others. We can be free from our fear of death. We can find joy and gladness that our sin has been removed, that we have become sons and daughters of God. And we can even embrace rejection and suffering even to the point of death itself because we know that if we have Jesus, we will rise again and be with him forever. So Jesus, we just say together, you are far more beautiful and merciful and loving and glorious than we can ever think or imagine. Jesus, your love for even your enemies has no height or depth. It's wider, it's more profound than anything else in all of the world. And so we are so grateful that you have come. You've come to offer yourself as a sacrifice for sin. Lord, I pray that we would continue to behold you and look at you the great i am the one who is worthy and worthy to be praised and lord i pray that for us as individuals and us as a church that we would only be all about jesus and it is in your name amen